This episode is brought to you by the members of the Best of the Left podcast. Details and benefits of membership are at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Colbert Report, Real Time with Bill Maher, The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, NPR, and The Rachel Maddow Show. stand up for an oppressed minority whose free speech is being infringed. Corporations. Other minorities have had their breakthroughs, but corporations are still forced to the back of the bus. Now, hopefully, their mistreatment may soon come to an end, which brings us to tonight's word. Let freedom ka Last week... The Supreme Court heard arguments about the tragic fate of a great film, 2008's Hillary the Movie. Jim? She is steeped in controversy, steeped in sleaze. She's deceitful. She'll make up any story, lie about anything. It's true. I've even heard her say that Dick Morris was once her friend. The movie never aired because a court ruled it was a political ad funded by a corporation and therefore illegal under campaign finance laws. So, instead, (laughs) instead of sinking the Clinton campaign, these filmmakers had to watch that honor go to someone else. This case... This case, Citizens United versus the Federal Elections Commission, will decide whether the framers of the Constitution intended for corporations to have a role in our electoral process. I say, I say, of course they did. They were obviously dreaming of a future where instead of serving a king, our leaders could serve Burger King. Mmm. Flame broiled taste and a sesame seed bun? Now that's what I call a more perfect union. (laughs) Now, laws regulating corporate contributions go back to the 1907 Tillman Act, when Americans thought corporate money was buying elections thanks in part to Theodore Roosevelt's campaign slogan, walk softly and carry a Futterman striped bathing costume. (laughs) When you think comfort, think Futterman's. This is really about the 1886 Supreme Court case Santa Clara v. Southern Pacific Railroad, which ruled that corporations have the same protection under the 14th Amendment as people. Though, actually, the 1886 court refused to rule on that specific issue. But when the Chief Justice made an off-the-record comment to that effect, the court reporter wrote it down and it's been cited ever since. It was a huge win for the railroads and a brilliant judicial decision by the court reporter whose previous job experience was being the president of a railroad. So, corporations are legally people. And it makes sense, folks. They do everything people do except breathe, die, and go to jail for dumping 1.3 million pounds of PCBs into the Hudson River. And as people, as people, corporations have certain inalienable rights. Attorney Ted Olson said it in last week's arguments. 
Corporations are persons entitled to protection under the First Amendment. Under the First Amendment. That means corporations have free speech. But they can't speak like you and me. They don't have mouths or hands. Instead, they, they must speak with the only way they can. Through billions and billions of dollars. Now, in 1976, the Supreme Court ruled that money is speech. Therefore, since corporations are people and people have the right of free speech and money is speech, corporations have the right to give unlimited amounts of money to political candidates, QED, which, thanks to a donation I recently received from Krispy Kreme, stands for Quick Eat Donuts. Mm. 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 In light mm. In light of this exciting pending decision, I say we return to the paper ballot. This kind. You just write the name of your candidate on your greenback, like this: President Taylor Swift. <laughs> One dollar, one dollar gives your candidate one vote. Twenty dollar gives your candidate 20 votes. And a $10 million cashier's check from Exxon gives your candidate a much better idea of where he stands on drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. But we, we can't stop with just freedom of speech. We must endow corporations with all the freedoms we flesh and blood people have been hogging for too long. For instance, the right to bear arms. How great would it be if Kraft had guns and they could just shoot cheese down our throats? And, and, And if corporations are people, why can't we just cut out the middleman and elect President Microsoft Office Assistant Clippy? <laughs> yes. Yes, folks, the court is on the verge of unregulating corporate money, and that is great news. Because if we give corporations all the rights of people, our government can truly claim it's by the people, for the people, and of the people. Should the top income tax rate be? I mean, it was 90% under Eisenhower. Right. You know, it doesn't... It, when it was 90, not many people actually paid that, even, even among the very rich. There were lots of loopholes in the code. But, you know, it was 50% it was when Ronald Reagan... 
with President. It was 70% for a lot of the 1960s. And the 60s were a great time for the economy. The point is, is it could be higher. We've we got this thing now where, you know, if you raise the tax from 35 to 36% for, for the richest, then the economy will collapse. And, you know, everything says that <laughs> history doesn't work that way. And, and there's another element. We, we've created fake wealth in a financial services sector that was trading paper back and forth without creating anything of real value. We had a Wall Street... And that, that has not stopped. No, it has not stopped. And, and that is, I think, the frustration that Michael was alluding to and that I, I think we share. Yeah, they, they haven't done anything about it. Yeah. It, and that's it, why I wonder why he's so still behind the president. I've, I've, had, that, uh, I've had that discussion with Michael. You know, we, we did a, a Rolling Stone panel, and he sounds like he ought to be extremely critical of Obama, but he isn't willing to go there yet. And, you know, I think a lot of people still are hoping that, that November 2008 changed everything. And they're not quite willing to buy into, you know, that was just maybe opening a door, but we haven't gone through it yet. Let me ask you a technical question, because you're a great economist and I'm not. Yeah. Where are we going to get money? Oh, where are we going to get money? Because we don't have any money and we need a lot of money. Where are we going to get it? You know, no, no, this is... <laughs> when they asked Willie Sutton, who's you know, we? why do you rob banks? Yeah, you he said, the question is, who's we? He said, that's because where the money is. Uh, but no, where look, is the money? Look, America's this huge, rich country. It's got still? enormous... Still, I mean, the, the factories are there, the, the, uh, the office the buildings are there. Well, there's still some factories out there, yeah. a few in New Jersey. Not so many. Uh, Not in Flint, uh, Michigan. There. No, but, you know, this, thing, the, the, this economy still generates or can generate enormous amount of, of wealth. The thing that we don't do is we don't use it. We, anybody suggests that we might actually need to pay a little bit more taxes to pay for the things we need, or that we might need to promise to raise some taxes later after we're through the crisis so that we can borrow some money now to deal with it. Everybody says, oh, taxes, that's a terrible thing. But the resources are there. I mean, this is, you know, to take health care, everybody's worrying, obsessing about the cost of health care. It's, it's no one is suggesting spending more on health care, on universal coverage over the next decade than we've already pissed away on this war in Iraq, right? I mean, this is, this is not, these are not large numbers. Paul, Paul just said, Paul said the critical, raised the critical issue, it's where you spend it. We are misallocating the money, both in terms of the money being spent on wars that probably should not have been fought. We are not investing in the sectors, technology, education, <coughs> that generate wealth. And we are not laying the foundation for future growth. And that is, we've had all our smart people go to Wall Street to create these fake derivatives, which then destroyed our economy, rather than creating engineers and technology types who would create products we could produce. That is the shift we need to go through. Otherwise, we'll be sunk. Doesn't somebody at some point have to get more money out of some people in yeah. this country? Yeah. I mean, I, they, they, they put the rich people off limits. They say they've given enough. No, it can, seems can, like that's where the money is. Let, and they did very well for the last 30 years. Let me give you years. one example. It's not only raising the taxes. Put that aside for a minute. It's where we spend the money we've got. The Treasury, the Fed, wrote a check to Goldman Sachs for $12.9 billion when they were bailing out AIG, the conduit payments, because they were a counterparty, right. 100 cents on the dollar. The totality of what Arne Duncan has to rebuild our, our K-12 <coughs> program with these incentives, 4.3. Goldman Sachs got three times as much as we're investing in the schools. That's crazy. Yet that is where this administration has been, and that is why your question to, 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 to Michael, I, I'm with you. They have not taken the bull by the horns and said we've got to change policies fundamentally. That's what we need to do. So per Sarah Palin said, uh, I, I, 
I know you, you probably don't know as much about economics as she does. Right. I, uh... But she said, if you want real job growth, you cut taxes. Cut payroll taxes, eliminate capital gains taxes, slay the death tax once and for all, and watch the U.S. economy roar back to life. No, this is... Answer that, Poindexter. <laughs> you know, this... I gotta I, I would never have believed that people's ability to practice amnesia would work so fast. I mean, we, what, what she's saying, you know, is basically we need to do more of what George W. Bush did. Right. And we just had the worst job creation record, the worst economic growth record of any administration since Herbert Hoover by following those policies. And they say, well, that's what we need is more of those. You know, it's, it's like a medieval doctor saying we've got to bleed the patient some more because he seems to be getting weaker. So let's let's take out some more blood. As I said before the break, the Supreme Court declared corporations citizens in 1886, the same year they said it was legal to shoot a horse out of a cannon for recreational purposes. <laughs> well, here now to tell us how that one decision changed the future of American law is CNN senior legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin. Jeffrey, thanks you so much for coming back. You've got the cover article in the New New Yorker about activist judges. You know all about judges out there. But in, in this original court case of Santa Clara versus the Southern Pacific Railroad in 1886, did the Supreme Court really decide that corporations are people? This is an amazing thing in Supreme Court history. Apparently what happened in that case was that the Chief Justice mentioned casually when the decision was announced that we're not going to deal with this issue of whether corporations are people. We all agree that it is. And then move to the giving the op opinion. But the court reporter took down that initial comment, made it part of the opinion, and it's been the law of the land ever since. Are we finding out right now that the most powerful man in America is the court reporter of the Supreme Court? Uh, it's, it's, and how can I get uh, that job? Because there are a few things I'd like to fix. I, me too, but uh, not, it's, hard, it's, a hard, it's, it's a hard job to get because of all that power. Now, um, I, I understand how corporations are people. Um, what I don't understand is how Mexicans are people. But... <laughs> Now, if this goes through, if this goes through, if they decide in favor of the corporations here, what's going to happen to elections? Well, they will be essentially deregulated, that the uh, corporations will be allowed to give money, corporations will be allowed to broadcast programs that are in favor of one side or another. It'll basically be uh, no, no more rules about uh, what corporations can do in political campaigns. Now, when I ran for president in, in 2008, uh, as the, the Hail to the Cheese uh, Doritos Stephen Colbert uh, campaign for yes. president, right. I was told I actually couldn't do 
knew that, that I was breaking federal election law by being sponsored by that corporation. But if, if this goes through, if, if this court case, uh, if they win, does that mean that I retroactively won the election? Uh, I don't think no? it means that. But no. could you do that? Could I actually just wear a NASCAR suit and just have logos all over me and run for president as the sort of, you know, Gatorade thirst for justice campaign for president? You definitely could. No question. No, what, what, what does it mean to individual donation? Like a, a corporation as a person uh, uh, gets to give any amount of money, but I as a person can only give $2,500. Right. That, that's what's potentially the next legal challenge, because if giving money is a form of speech, as the court has held at various times, you can't prohibit a company from giving money, and then presumably the next step would be you can't have limits on how much individuals could give either. That's that's the potential implication of this decision. So, so there, there is, right now, corporations will actually have more power as people than people until people catch up with corporations. That's that's exactly right. That would be the rule. So that, that actually kind of confuses me. How corporations are more people than people? Could we um, could we settle that by 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 ruling that people aren't people? I don't think that's going to be the way the court goes. Ruling that people aren't people. Have, have you met Justice Scalia? <laughs> I have, and I don't. I don't think Justice Scalia would rule that. Jeffrey Tubin, thank Good you so much you. for joining us. There was light in the room. Then you left, and it was through. Then the frost started. Toes and fingertips And it spread And it spread Into my heart And it spread And it spread Into my heart Then for I don't know have uh, some bad news as to where the Obama White House is going with financial regulations. Lack of regulations has led to the debacle that we had, of course, in 08, and that continued into 09 uh, with the financial collapse. Now, uh, we were told, don't worry, give them the money in the beginning, and then later uh, we will regulate them. Now, uh, instantly, I said that was a terrible idea, because if uh, you're going to give somebody money, uh, that's the time to attach conditions to it. If you already give them the money and later say, could you pretty please do these conditions, they will say no. And of course, that's exactly what's happened here. But worse yet is the lack of ambition of the regulation. Now, the person saying this today was Paul Volcker, former head of the Fed and head of President Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Board, one of his top economic aides. Now, Paul Volcker is to the right of me. I le reading his suggestions for what we should do, he, I would say he's almost significantly to the right of me. And he's at his breaking point. He's taking this public, he thinks it's too important to stay silent, and he's saying the Obama administration is to the right, significantly to the right of him in not doing enough regulation to get our problems, our fundamental problems with our 
financial system under control. So specifically, he says, one, uh, the banks are still too big to fail. In fact, they're even bigger now. And he says, very frankly, if we have another economic collapse, it is now the absolute expectation that the American people will bail out those banks again. And then, if it happens again, they'll bail them out again, and again, and again. Okay, you're getting my point? You're getting Paul Volcker's point? So, the system has not been fixed at all, but then that adds an, an, a limit, an additional danger, which is, uh, if they know they're going to get bailed out, if they're positive of it, well, what's the harm in taking risks again and making a lot of money and bonuses again? If they crash, well, the American people are going to have to pick up the bill anyway. So that's the big regulation we were going to get later? Okay, so that's point number one. That's terrible. Uh, point number two is um, it has been at actually the safety net of who we're supposed to pick up. Because remember, ultimately, let's remember why we bail people out. Because they have our money, right? We've, uh, they merged the commercial and the investment banks. Uh, investment banks were supposed to be the risky things, and if they fail, they fail, that's their problem. And the commercial banks has our deposits, right? And they can't fail because that's our money. And that's what's uh, very important to prop that up, right? Now, they merged them thanks to Larry Summers, the top economic advisor of Barack Obama, which was a terrible idea, and then why he gets hired to lead the fix is beyond me, unless you don't really want to fix it. So now, the second problem is that... Uh, these in, banks have grown so large that they're taking risks with your money, and we are not going to separate them. And Volcker's saying, we, you, you have to separate them, as we had before Larry Summers convinced Bill Clinton at the end of his term, second term, to uh, combine those two different entities, commercial banks and investment banks. Problem number three is, now we're securing uh, things that aren't even banks, like AIG, which is an insurance company. And Volcker says, that's a terrible idea. I mean, yes, okay, I can understand commercial banks. Now that the investment banks are part of them, okay, I could barely understand that, even though it's a terrible idea. But why the hell are we insuring uh, insurance companies and other entities that aren't even banks and that don't have your deposits? And do we have any plan to fix those obvious problems? Right now, the answer is no. They're not even going to get addressed. All right, so that continues uh, the terrible ideas that's happening right now. And then... If you think all oh, that is bad, well, the one thing that the Obama administration, well, a couple of things that they're going to do, but their one main big thing is, hey, don't worry, we're going to set up an agency that looks out after the consumer and warns them about financial products that are too risky or dangerous or not on the level, right? And, of course, the Republicans and the corporatist Democrats hate this. They're like, no, 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 don't warn the people. How do you think our boys are going to make all that money? No, don't, let, let them keep scamming you, right? So this is supposed to look out over the banks and other people who deal in these financial products. Well, since the Republicans and the corporatist Democrats, quote-unquote centrist Democrats, are fighting back, uh, Tim Geithner has signaled that, okay, I'll meet you halfway. So uh, we will cover the banks, but we won't cover... Now, we're going to give money to the non-banks, but we won't do any regulation of them. So now... Boker's significantly to the right of me, and the Obama administration is significantly to the right of Boker, and now the new compromise is significantly to the right of that. And I swear to you that I'm a moderate 
die-hard capitalists. I do not agree with Michael Moore. We need to have capitalism in the country. I believe in the financial system. But we need to have rules and regulations, otherwise it's anarchy. I'm a moderate, and this is how far out to the right we are now. This is garbage. This doesn't fix the problem at all. And this is what we talked about before. One of his other uh, proposals here, Obama's proposal is, if you make a loan, I think you should keep a loan, because then you have incentive to make a good loan. They say, no, no, you, you have to keep a part of the loan, 5%. I, the reason I keep coming back to that is because it's perfectly emblematic of what we're getting with Obama on domestic side. 5% change. Did we vote for 5% change? I mean, look, the reason why this story is so important is because Paul Volcker wouldn't come out and have all this criticism of his own White House, that he's the head of their Economic Recovery Advisory Board, if he wasn't getting listened to at all inside the White House. They must have told Volcker, piss off, right? So that's why he's got to make it public. That means they have no intention of fixing it. Oh, that, disastrous. And what does that tell you? That tells you our government is captured by corporate interests. And we're in a world of trouble, and it's going to take a long time uh, to get out from under this rock. We are in occupied territory. It's occupied by corporate America, and these politicians are doing their bidding and not our bidding. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that is exactly what's happening. Now, you want to make it worse? Let's have fun. Let's make it worse. Now, we go to the TARP watchdog. His name is Neil Borofsky, and uh, he's supposed to watch out for how we're spending the TARP money. And he says, we've got another disaster on our hands. Let me give you some quotes. For example, certain TARP programs, he told Congress, such as the Mortgage Modification Program, which is scheduled to use $50 billion of TARP funds, will yield no direct return. And for others, including extraordinary assistance programs to AIG, the insurance company that is not a bank and that does not have our deposits, and the auto companies, full recovery is far from certain. And his ultimate conclusion is, it is extremely unlikely that we will get that TARP money back. Not that we're not going to get any of it back. We've gotten some of it back already. All of it, extremely unlikely. Most of it, open question. Very much an open question. Remember what they told us. Oh, don't worry about the TARP money. Because it's just a loan, and once the financial system's up and running again, we'll get it back. Oh, look at that. It turns out we're not going to get it back. Some of the banks are going to go, or non-banks are going to just keep it. All right, problem number two that Borofsky uh, points out. Quote, the risk of foreclosure continues to affect too many Americans. Unemployment continues its rise uh, to levels that Treasury has characterized as unacceptable. The so-called toxic assets that helped cause this crisis for the most part, remain right where they were last fall on the bank's balance sheets. And it is becoming more and more clear that the commercial real estate market might be the next proverbial shoe to drop, threatening to increase the pressure on banks and small businesses alike yet again. So we have about three different disasters in just that quote. One, we haven't fixed the system. Two, we're not getting that TARP money back. <laughs> three, uh, uh, we still have the unemployment, and we still have this uh, underlying economic problems, and they're not even using the money for what they said they were going to use it for, which is to make loans. And number four, uh, we're going to have another economic disaster when the commercial real estate goes under. And when it does, then we're out of money. And we're in a world of hurt. This is not light warnings. And these are not people that are 
activists or anything like that, and I don't use that in a derogatory way, that activists have been the most right on these issues. But these are guys who are the TARP watchdog, the head of the Economic Advisory Board, and they're waving red flags going, we didn't fix a damn thing, it's going to fall again. And then when it does, what will Larry Summers and Tim Geithner and the rest of them tell you? No one could have seen it coming. I just want to see you when you're all alone. I just want to catch you if I can. I just want to be there when the morning light explodes on your face in The members of the Best of the Left podcast are the wind beneath my wings. Their donations of as little as $5 a month are what allow me to keep this show on a steady schedule twice a week instead of just once as it has been in the past. In return, members receive access to the Best of the Left raw feed where they receive all of the clips that end up in the show, plus bonus material that doesn't make the final cut. And content in the raw feed is delivered in its original video format when available. If you appreciate the service that this show provides, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. I know you want to hear me catch my breath. I love you too. Thousands of unemployed manufacturing robots join the military. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Newly idled production robots are lining up in droves to make a better future for themselves in the U.S. Armed Forces, giving an unexpected boost to lagging recruitment numbers. Former Detroit spot welding unit number B00571 had this to say shortly after passing his mechanical. Problems with returning robot veterans have been on the rise, however, with many found wandering aimlessly and randomly manufacturing 2006 Chevrolet Suburbans. A year and a half ago, All Things Considered aired a collaboration between NPR and This American Life. It was called The Giant Pool of Money. The program explored the roots of the financial crisis, how and why subprime loans were made, sold, and repackaged to investors. The show aired months before the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the rescue of AIG, and months before a U.S. housing downturn created a devastating global recession. Adam Davidson and Alex Bloomberg, with NPR's Planet Money team, recently revisited two of the people who appeared in that first story to find out how they're faring these days. Nobody's life better embodies the fast, easy money of the bubble years and the pain of that bubble popping as much as Glenn Pizzolarusso. Glenn was an area sales manager at a mortgage lender called WMC Mortgage. 
He was in his 20s, and he was bringing in $100,000 a month. A month. He owned five cars, divided his time between two luxury homes, and spent a lot of nights partying in exclusive New York clubs. Here's Glenn in a clip from the original hour we did on This American Life. We would roll up to Marquis at midnight with a, you know, a line 500 people deep out front, walk right up to the door, give me my table. We're sitting uh, next to Tara Reed and uh, a couple of her friends. We're sitting, uh, you know, it, Christina Aguilera was doing, uh, you know, whatever, like if I'm Christina Aguilera, I'm going to get up and sing. So Christina Aguilera and all her people are there. Well, this was our Cuba Gooding and that kid uh, from Filthy Rich Cattle Drive. What was that kid's name? Fabian Barabia, whatever. Um, you know, we order probably three or four bottles of Cristal at a thousand dollars a bottle. They bring it out with, you know, they're walking through the crowd. They hold the bottles over their head. They put there's firecrackers in them, the sparklers, you know, the little cocktail waitresses. So you order four bottles of those. They're walking through the crowd, you know, of people. Everybody's like, whoa, who's the cool guys? Well, we were the cool guys. You know what I mean? They gave me a black card. You know, this little card with my name on it. There's probably like 10 of them in existence. You know? And that meant that I just spent way too much money there. After the bubble burst, Glenn lost everything. His company is now out of business. He lost the Porsche and all the other cars. He lost his home to foreclosure, and he couldn't afford to rent a place. So now he's staying at a house his dad owns. It's actually the house where he grew up. I have been humbled. I mean, I've been forced to be humbled. I just have a different outlook on what's important, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm driving a car that has no payment on it. It's a piece of junk. I used to think that it mattered, you know? <laughs> but it doesn't. None of the, the monetary stuff that we are preconditioned to think is important matters. We've met dozens of people, hundreds, who've been affected by this crisis. But, Adam, I don't think we've met anyone who's been so thoroughly changed as Glenn has. It's amazing. Talking to him, I feel like I'm watching one of those Hollywood movies where the rich jerk learns what makes life really valuable. Instead of partying with B-list celebrities, he now spends most of his time with his wife and three kids. He's in school now, and he loves it. He never liked school before. He's reading lots of books about politics and history. Again, something he never did before. He says it's like the Glenn from before and the Glenn now are two totally different Glens. I have a, I have a beautiful family. <laughs> That's success. I'm successful. And you can't tell me that I'm not. But that Glenn didn't think that way. That Glenn, success was measured by, you know, my American Express black card. You know, that's what success was, you know, going and showing off the cars and that, that Glenn measured success by things. And I just, I don't do that anymore. We also met Jim Finkel in early 2008. I went with him to this kind of black tie dinner and award ceremony that I, I think it's safe to say will never happen again. It was a night of awards for the people who created the best securitized financial instrument. You know all of those things that later that year we started calling toxic assets? Well, this was before that, when they were still giving out awards for them. And Jim at that dinner told me that he still believed that those complicated financial instruments that he was creating, including the now infamous collateralized debt obligation, or CDO, were a wonderful invention, and that the people at that dinner were heroes. This guy is a legend. He's a granddaddy of our industry. Well, it's been a rough year and a half since for Jim Finkel. His business was built entirely on the most complex subprime mortgage securities. Like Glenn, he rode the bubble up to great riches, and then it burst. 
I never thought as a, a, a startup manager within 36 months we could ever possibly be managing $5 billion, um, let alone that we could possibly, uh, in 12, the 12 following months, lose, lose 60% of it, lose $3 billion. Now, if you've got the impression that everyone on Wall Street walked away from this crisis without losing any money, bailed out by the government, Jim Finkel wants to make things very clear. That is not true. At least it's not true for him and a lot of people like him. Jim was what's called an asset manager, which is sort of like a subcontractor to the big investment banks on Wall Street. Someone at, say, Merrill Lynch would hire Jim's small company to put together these mortgage-backed investment deals. Jim made his money by investing in the assets he created. When they went up, like during the bubble, he made a lot of money. When they lost value, he lost a lot of money. Now, the investment banks, they made money in a totally different way. Those guys took a lot of upfront fees out of those deals, and they took bonuses out of those upfront fees. And even though their banks went belly up, um, those bonuses were never clawed back. A lot of people made enormous amounts of money and moved on. Jim did not lose his houses or his cars like Glenn did. He did lose millions of dollars, but he's doing fine. But he says this year has been awful in a different way. He remembers when he first started working with firms on Wall Street years ago. He had a few mentors who warned him about something. They all try to convince me all the time that people on Wall Street were bad. Now, you know, no one seemed to be bad. Everyone seemed to be trying their hardest, and we had clients, and we thought we were doing well by them. This set of events did convince me that people on Wall Street generally are bad because I saw how quickly the banks turned on their, on their customers, including uh, how the banks have turned on us, uh, how they withdrew their credit lines, how they traded against us, how they've, uh, they've done anything anything they can. Um, and that was dispiriting, and it just proved that my mentors were correct and I was overly idealistic. Now, Jim's company, Dynamic Credit, is surprisingly still in business. They're not creating subprime mortgage securitizations anymore. They have a new job. Now, investors who bought those now toxic assets during the bubble, they hire Jim to figure out if there's anything of value left. governor and Republican vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin can officially add a third line to her foreign policy resume tonight. Underneath own house's proximity to Russia and met the president of Colombia that one time, uh, she can now list gave a speech in Hong Kong. A couple of things to know about this speech, which was delivered to a room full of financial executives at an investors forum. First, the speech was closed to the press. However, we do have some appropriately grainy and shaky footage from somebody's handy cam. I'm going to call it like I see it, and I'm going to share with you candidly a view kind of from Main Street, Main Street USA, and how perhaps 
my view of Main Street, representing perhaps a lot of other people, how that affects you and your business. Second interesting thing about this speech, Sarah Palin brought along as her advisor, Randy Schooneman, the controversial top foreign policy advisor from the McCain-Palin campaign. Mr. Schooneman made himself famous for, at least famous for D.C. at least, uh, when it turned out that his lobbying firm signed a new contract with the Republic of Georgia on the same day that John McCain, the candidate for president, spoke to the president of Georgia and released a statement supporting Georgia in what was about to become Georgia's armed conflict with Russia. The implication was that Georgia paid McCain's advisor. McCain's advisor later got McCain to say, we are all Georgians, and therefore, for the low, low price of Randy Schooneman's company's lobbying fee, Georgia almost bought the U.S. military as an ally in a war against Russia. That's cheap. And Randy Schooneman is who Sarah Palin brought on board to help her navigate foreign policy in her first speech abroad. In the speech, which went on for a solid hour and a half before the question period, Sarah Palin argued that the economic crisis that we're in right now was caused by too much regulation of the financial world. Not a typo. Too much regulation. Quote, we got into this mess because of the government, because of government interference in the first place. Lack of government wasn't the problem. Government policies were the problem. The marketplace didn't fail. It became exactly as common sense would expect it to. The government ordered the loosening of lending standards. The Federal Reserve kept interest rates low. The government forced lending institutions to give loans to people who couldn't afford them. That's how we got into this mess. Really? And so the solution, presumably, is less regulation for Wall Street going forward? I do not mean to demean the former governor's economic bona fides, um, but we do have an opportunity here to get a second opinion on this from the man who won the Nobel Prize in economics. Joining us now is Paul Krugman, New York Times columnist, economics professor at Princeton, and, of course, Nobel laureate. His totally readable, totally worth it updated book, The Return of Depression Economics and the Crisis of 2008, is now out in paperback. Paul, thanks for coming back on the show. Hi there. Um, I know Sarah Palin uh, isn't the most relevant topic, but i got to ask you, uh, too much government interference in the markets? May I say first, an hour and a half? 90 hour? solid minutes before oh question. God. I know. <laughs> That's half a Castro. Anyway, um, uh, is that what caused the financial crisis? Um, hour and a half speeches, maybe. Uh, no, um, you know, the funny thing is that Governor Palin is not that far out of the Republican mainstream. I'm actually not sure she's out of it at all on this. Hmm. There are a lot of people who, you know, insist that it, we know government is bad, we know private sector is good, so it must have been government that caused the crisis. And the absence of any facts that actually sort of go in accord with that point of view don't seem to matter. I mean. Of course, the way to think about it is that we had a pretty tightly regulated banking sector from FDR up until Ronald Reagan. And number of financial crises during that period, zero. Yeah. Then we had Reagan deregulation, savings and loan crisis, further deregulation, East Asian financial crisis, and even more deregulation, and well, here we are. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty amazing point of view for anyone to be holding, but a lot of people do hold it. Well, you say your um, the return of depression economics, uh, depression economics is not um, just about how we got into this problem. Right. It's also about sort of how to get out. You say in the book that even if there are some tiny green shoots of good news out there right now, we are still living in a world in which the usual rules of economic policy don't apply. We're living in a world, you say, governed by depression economics. What did the depression teach economists about how to get out of one or avoid one? 
problem? Well, it told us a lot about how to avoid one, which is that you really have to, you have to put some constraints. I mean, put it roughly, banking is very useful but extremely dangerous. And banks have to have all kinds of you know, fencing put around as a protection. They have to have some guarantees so that they, we don't have bank runs, so people know their money is safe. But then they also have to have regulation so that bankers don't take huge risks with other people's money on a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose basis. Mm -hmm. We forgot all of that. A lot, the, the short line about how we got into this crisis is we forgot what our grandfathers learned at great expense. Getting out of, now that we're in the mess, that's much harder. I mean, the last time we got out of it with a world war, which is not something we hope to repeat. So. A world war that wasn't as a war useful. It was useful because it was a huge economic outlay that's, by government. That's right. It was an enormous fiscal stimulus. It was, you know, we're getting all worked up about Obama, who will be spending at max about 2.5% of gross domestic product. World War II, of course, was more than 40% of gross domestic product at its peak. So this is trivial stuff that we're doing now. Luckily, it's not confronting a Great Depression, but... Um, I get depressed sometimes about depression because the lesson of the depression seems to be that getting out of this sort of thing requires efforts on a scale that's outside the realm of what's politically discussable right now. Do you think that because there are some green shoots of economic recovery right now that further government action is even less likely? That the yeah. worse things are, the more political possibility there is? Yeah, there, there's a certain sense. You know, there's the Rahm Emanuel line, and you never, never let a crisis go to waste. But, you know, it's starting to look like we did. Hmm. And now things, things are not good. Unemployment is high, it's still rising, but the sense that we've got to act because otherwise the world might end is fading away, and that makes it very hard to do stuff. One piece of the, the recovery effort, but also the re-regulation effort yeah. that we've tried to, be focus, tried to focus on in this show is um, consumer protection. Yeah. The president proposing new federal agency to regulate consumer financial products, things like credit cards and mortgages and all these other things that a lot of normal Americans have. Do you think those proposals are smart, and do they go far enough? Oh, they're smart, and they go far enough on that dimension, uh, but that's actually one of the smaller pieces of it. I mean, right. it, much more important is regulating the amount of capital that banks have to hold on hand and, and regulating the way bankers get paid. The consumer protection ought to be the no-brainer, simple thing. How could anybody object? Of course they are. So that's the, the reason consumer protection has become a touchstone here is because if we can't even do that, right. what chance do we have of actually fixing the bigger things? It's the regulatory equivalent of like uh, you know voting in favor of mom and apple pie. We ought to, the more complicated stuff shouldn't be. That's right. Not much further down the road. I started singing bye bye Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee but the levee was dry. Them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye and singing this'll be the day that I die. This'll be the day that I die. The Dow rallies after an escaped chimpanzee rings the opening bell. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. 
Wall Street analysts are giving credit for today's surge in trading volume to an especially loud opening bell rung by an escaped chimpanzee wielding a large hammer. While generally pleased with the rally, many investors were privately alarmed that a panicky zoo animal was able to gain access to the New York Stock Exchange trading floor. Bond trader Ben Morgenthal. We all remember what happened when a pigeon got in here. We got lucky this time. After escaping with the stock exchange bell, the chimp was later apprehended for attempting to manipulate banana futures. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. our government okay we're all held hostage now finally some people are saying it one of our guests today is going to talk about it Dylan Radigan said it on MSNBC it's being to creep into the mainstream media a little bit but the reality is big money owns the government it, 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 uh, Dick Durbin the number two guy in the Center for the Democrats said when they were tr proposing some regulations for the banks earlier in the year he said they still run the place the banks still run the place but I'm not just referring to the banks I'm talking about you know, corporate America with the lobbyists, but I'm not just talking about corporate America. I'm talking about anybody who can muster up big money, whether it's a special interest, the NRA, whether it's, uh, you know, you, if you're on the right, you can rightfully say unions, they have a lot of money and they invest a lot of money in politics. But, uh, and it could be just simply wealthy people like the Walton family, which owns Walmart. They single-handedly drove the estate tax issue. They spent millions upon millions of dollars because when the Republicans removed the estate tax for a short period of time, they made billions out of it. You see, they get it. It's a smart investment. Keating, do you remember the guy who did the Keating Five, the essential character there, the businessman that basically bribed those senators? John McCain was involved, although he was the least involved of the five. And when they asked Keating, they said, you know, uh, you spent this money on these politicians, and uh, did you expect them to do you favors in return? He said, of course. <laughs> what the hell would I spend my money on if I didn't expect them to do me favors in return? I'm a businessman. I expected a return on investment. That, I'm paraphrasing here, but that's definitely what he drove towards, and there's a great quote on it here that I don't have with me. But, but that's the essence of it, man. They are investing in politicians so they reap huge benefits from them in terms of government contracts, whether it's the defense industry, uh, whether it's lack of regulation in the financial industry, whether it's getting rid of uh, taxes, especially the estate tax for the Waltons, and the list goes on and on and on. And here today, you know, we've been talking a lot about healthcare, and healthcare uh, companies, of course, have a lot to gain or lose depending on legislation, so they pour the money in. And so in the end, the politicians just simply do not represent us, the people, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or an independent. Like the, in fact, I feel most sorry for some of the Republicans, some of the conservatives in the country who think the Republicans represent their interests. I mean, they're treating you and they're taking you for fools. Like uh, the banking in, uh, issue is the best example of that. The conservatives hate that we gave the bailout money to the banks, right? Which is great. They should hate that. There's something really insidious about that, that we took all our hard-earned money and gave it to the richest people in America because they screwed up.
right? So I'm on your side on that. But here's where we diverge. When your Republican politicians tell you, oh, no, no, so the best thing to do is leave the banks alone. Don't regulate them at all. Let them make the same mistakes again. What? Okay. No, you know why they're doing that? It's because the Republican politicians get paid their wholly owned subsidiary of those banks. And they're tricking you into it. So, look, the, and that's why I'm putting this as a long-term goal. We have to find a way for the politicians to represent the people and not big money. Okay? It's big money versus the people. And I don't know if we do it through campaign finance reform. I think it's a really good idea or an interesting idea and something that we should explore at length. Or it could be simply uh, that we fight big money with small money, that we all find a way to contribute and we become the biggest special interest. And we say, look, if you're not going to do things uh, our way, we do what APAC and the NRA do. What they do is, and we've had reporters on here to discuss this, they target single congressmen or senators and say, if you screw us, we're coming to get you. Okay, And you can do that if you put together a lot of small donors, and then we can wield uh, some power so that they actually listen, not because I want it or you want it, but so that they can actually listen to the people who voted them in, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. So that's w one of my promises to you, that in the, in the long term, I'm going to fight for that tooth and nail. Because if we don't do that, we're going to lose to big money on every single issue. Now, uh, the s second large issue that we got to fight is the media, and that's why I bring up the media all the time. If the media is supposed to be your refs, and they're supposed to tell you, hey, are, are people playing in within the rules? Uh, they're supposed to call the fouls. They're supposed to tell you, hey, is this right or is this false, true or false, et cetera. Now, if they don't do their job, and that's not what they're doing, and instead they're calling everything 50-50, well, then we have a perverse system that we don't know what's true and false. And then the people are misled. And then they think, as they did all the way in 06, in 03 it was a great majority of the American people, but even in 06, 43% of the American people believe that Saddam Hussein was personally involved in 9-11. That is 0% true, but yet a gigantic portion of America absolutely believe that. That is a failure of the media. Now that is one easy example, but there are a hundred examples. If the media keeps failing you, then we can't get you the information you need to be a participant in democracy, a true participant. So that's project number two. Get the media to do their jobs. To, not to be neutral, but to be objective. There is an enormous difference. Neutrality is an umpire calling balls and strikes who says, well look, the Yankees want me to call balls, and the Red Sox want me to call strikes. So no matter where the pitch is, I'm going to call half of them balls and half of them strikes. Well, that's, that is stu obviously stupid, perverts the game, makes the game meaningless. Calls the balls and strikes as they are. That's what the job of the media is supposed to be. And if they don't do that, then it's impossible to get the majority of Americans the correct information. We're not asking you to cover our side. And if somebody's wrong, whether they're a progressive or a conservative, of course you should point it out. So those are the two big long-term projects that I want to do on this show from here going forward for as long as it takes. You know, it's not going to be something we're going to accomplish in a couple of months or even a couple of years, to be honest with you. But we've got to keep going with those goals in mind so that we can actually do real democracy in this country.
Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm going to try to make this real quick and go through uh, just a few things. Of course, this is going to be the last time that I'm going to ask you to nominate the show for the podcast awards. Of course, the voting session is coming up, and that's a whole other can of worms. But right now, this episode is going to be posted uh, just about a day before the, the closing of the nomination section. So if you have not nominated yet, please head over to podcastawards.com before midnight eastern time in the u.s on october 18th it's super simple you just uh nominate the shows you want uh obviously the best of the left is going for best produced category this year as well as the political category so you just put in the information about the show you know put in our website and name and stuff like that um and then at the bottom, fill in some comments about why you think the show should be nominated. That's that's an important factor as they're figuring out uh, who is going to be in the final slate of uh, nominees. And uh, enter you know your email address to confirm and stuff like that. And uh, and you're all set. It's really simple, and I really appreciate anyone who has nominated the show. We'll all keep our fingers crossed and uh, hope things go well headed forward to the uh, to the voting time. Now, also today, I wanted to mention something that I 100% intended to mention in the last show. Of course, the last show was uh, focused on global warming, and so I should have been mentioning 350.org during that episode, but I forgot. So I, I had to mention it now because the big, like seriously, the biggest international day of action to ever happen on global warming is happening on October 24th details are at 350.org so what you want to do i mean basically it's, it's a distributed action is what they're called if you go to 350.org you'll find out where an action is taking place near where you live so that you can get involved so you know it, it's important that uh, this be taking place now of course the international negotiations on climate change are happening in copenhagen in december and this is a big deal. This is like, you know, everyone's heard of the Kyoto Protocol. Well, this is the replacement for the Kyoto Protocol. The uh, Kyoto Agreement is about to expire. Copenhagen is set up to be the next international agreement. So obviously it's really important that everyone be involved. And the October 24th is designed to be the stepping stone to Copenhagen. So again, I encourage you to uh, be involved in that and check out 350, it's just the number, 350.org for all the details on that. Now, just for uh, the benefit of this show, I really want to encourage you to tell your friends about the show. I mean, if, if you don't have any other way to support the show, that's the, that's the thing I need you to do. You know the old saying, or maybe you don't, probably you don't. <laughs> in, 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 with a situation like this, with a show like this, or an organization of any kind, if you're not growing, you're shrinking. So with me being in the position of uh, making a little stab at making a, just a little bit of a living off of this show, I really need your help to keep the show growing. Because if we stop growing, we're going to start shrinking, and that's going to be trouble for everyone. So if you can take just a couple of minutes, write an email to five friends, let them know about the show, tell all your coworkers around the water cooler, check out your local you know, lib group, who gets together to talk about uh, politics, send them an email. You know, they all have contact information. Send, send an email to, to a group like that and say, hey, you know, I think your members would be interested in this show. Just uh, 
just taking a couple of minutes to help spread the word is going to go a long, long way to helping keep this show sustainable and keep it growing and keeping it healthy. So I really appreciate that. And now finally, I just wanted to thank, of course, a couple of people who are helping to keep the show going in a seriously concrete way. A couple of members who signed up really recently, Lisa W. just signed up on October 12th and has the, the honored spot of being the, the new number one contributor to the show. So a huge thanks to Lisa for being a very generous brand new member. And I also want to thank our newest member, Stephen D, who signed up just about 30 minutes ago. And he knows why. He signed up to be a member, but he, he's, he's really taking steps to, uh, to not just support the show financially, but he, he's really trying to make the show better and, and helping out behind the scenes. So I really appreciate that from both of these members. Of course, both of them now receive access to the members-only raw feed, which is great for them and all of the members. They'll receive automatically, just like a podcast, they'll receive all of the clips that end up being uh, later edited into this podcast, as well as a bunch of you know great clips that are, are good and I love them, but they just don't quite make the final cut. And best of all, a lot of this stuff is delivered in its original video format. So that's a great bonus material for members who are uh, stepping up to help support the show. And of course, they just have the warm, fuzzy feeling of, of knowing they're helping to keep the show going. So I'm, I know that uh, that's, that's keeping them warm at nights as the weather's starting to get colder here in the Northern Hemisphere. So that is it for today. Stay connected with the show on Twitter and Facebook, which is, of course, now more useful than ever to do that. Uh, Best of Left is putting out lots of great material on, uh, on those two sources. And you can sign up for our email newsletter to get, you know, basically about one email a month, you know, just kind of letting you know what's what's up with the show and, and some of the best ways to help and, and just what's going on. You can support the show by leaving reviews in Podcast Alley and, of course, nominating the show at the Podcast Awards. And then stay on your toes. Voting's coming right up. We fully expect to be nominated and, uh, and are hoping that you'll be ready to vote when the time is right. The show is available on your smartphone by going to stitcher.com and you can visit the show notes where you'll find the links to uh, you know all the sources and all the music used in this episode. That's on our blog. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend thanks to the members from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet